Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. Hope the day finds you well today. With all the sickness in the news in the past few years, we all dread the day that we might catch something that requires us to submit ourselves to the care of others. I myself have a torn tendon in my arm that requires surgery, but I simply won't give in to it. Maybe it's just plain old mountain stubbornness on my part, or maybe it, uh, that I've read enough about ones who are known as angels of death that I'm just a bit uneasy about submitting my very survival to somebody else or anybody else, as a matter of fact. Especially now that I'm officially a geezer and am one of their preferred customers. These angels of death work with the medical field and are assigned to provide close personal care to those requiring it. They administer medications to comfort the sick as they attempt to become well. The only problem is that they take it upon themselves to decide who's worth saving and who needs to just go on and get it over with. Then they take it a step further by helping the sick go on ahead and get it over with. Come on in, have yourself set down, and let me tell you about one of those monsters. Charles Edmund Cullen was born February 22, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey, to a working-class Irish family, the last of eight children. His father, Edmund, was a bus driver. He was 56 when Charles was born, and uh, lo and behold, the poor man died on September 17, 1960, when Charles was just seven months old. It's said that he dropped over from a heart attack. Charles described his childhood as completely miserable and by being constantly bullied by his sister's boyfriends and his schoolmates. When he was nine, he made the first of many suicide attempts by mixing all the chemicals together in his chemical set pouring them in a glass of milk and drinking them right down. Uh, unfortunately, back then, you know, the chemicals weren't that strong and didn't do anything but really make his stomach upset. But later, while working as a nurse, he says that he fantasized about stealing drugs from the hospital where he worked and using them to end his life. 
Well, I can say too bad he didn't succeed, as we'll later see. Then, as if that wasn't already bad enough, his brother Florence was killed in a car wreck on December 6, 1977, at the age of 60, when Charles was in his senior year of high school, just in time for Christmas, of course. So that just busted him across the eyes with another dose of trauma to chew on. I'll say it. Sometimes you just got to take a driver's license away from a geezer. They may lay themselves among the sweet peas by hanging on too long, but there's no sense in letting them take others with them. Not that it's what happened here, but I thought I'd just go ahead and say it anyway. It may be a good time to talk to them after they wipe out a row of mailboxes or take out a few feet of fence. That's when we, we knew it was time to have a talk with my grandmother because she was able to do both of them in one fell swoop. But anyway... Charles remembered this that is as devastating to him. And to make it that much worse, the hospital wouldn't return her body. And in fact, they had it lost. They didn't know where it was at for a little while. They took it to a crematorium and cremated it, and just because nobody stopped them, I guess. Then they used the UPS, or not the UPS, but the U.S. Postal Service and shipped them right to him in a container that looked something like a Chinese takeout would be in. And they used the cheapest ground shipping that they could get to do it, which took a whole lot longer to get to him so he would know what finally happened to her. Sounds to me like the bedside manner of the good folks at the hospital needed a bit of adjustment. But I guess now being done with it all, the young Charles dropped out of school in the following year just so he could enlist in the U.S. Navy. That's where he served aboard the submarine USS Woodrow Wilson. So he passed basic training and the rigorous psychological examinations required to sub for submarine crews who were expected to spend as long as two months at a time underwater pretty much stuffed in a big tube. Well, he rose to the rank of petty officer second class as part of the team that operated the ship's Poseidon missiles. You see, this is how the deviant mind works. I'm sure that he whiled away the hours at the bottom of the sea, carrying out task after task while his mind was exploding with some type of deviant schemes. And it didn't help that he didn't fit in any better in the Navy than he did anywhere else. So that got him hazed and bullied by his fellow crewmen. A year into his service, he, his leading commander discovered him sitting in a missile controls wearing nothing but a surgical mask and gloves rather than his uniform. He never explained what, why as he dragged him to the closest thing they had to a brig in a submarine. Probably just handcuffed him to the periscope pipe or something. The Navy made the decision to reassign Charles to a lower-pressure job on the supply ship USS Canopus. That was probably a good thing, since the first thing he did was attempt suicide and was dragged off to the psych ward. That same old song and dance would repeat itself several times over the next few years. Finally, he received a medical discharge from the Navy in 1984 for, of course, undisclosed reasons. Shortly thereafter, he enrolled at the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey. He was elected president of his nursing class, and he graduated in 1986. He then went straight to work at the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston. 
That's about the time he met and married his wife, Adrian Brom. Their daughter, Shauna, was born later that year, and his wife soon just became disturbed at his unusual behavior and abuse of the family dogs. Well, why is it always the poor animals, folks? That's when all of a sudden, patients at the hospital started dropping like flies and kept dropping from 1988 to 1992 when it was finally discovered that somebody had been adding huge amounts of insulin to the IV bags, which was killing the patients. The investigators questioned everybody into place and finally arrived at the conclusion that Charles Cullen had most likely been responsible, resulting in dozens of patient deaths at the hospital. All Nurse Cullen ever said was to prove it. That proved to be more difficult than they thought. They really didn't have anything on him and that they, they could take to court, but he did leave that job rather abruptly. And one month after leaving St. Barnabas, he took a job at Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg where three elderly women crossed over from the overdoses of heart medication to Johnson. <clears throat> During all of his this, Charles practically stayed in his basement where he hid his stash of various alcoholic beverages, which he gorged on every night. Before you know it, he had to move into a basement apartment at Phillipsburg because his wife wife's idiot meter hit the full and yeah, she wrestled him through a contentious divorce. He shared custody of his daughters. Charles said that at that point, which was 1983, he just wanted to quit nursing, but the court-ordered child support payments forced him to continue working. In March 1993, and of course thinking that he'd already done, hadn't done enough, <clears throat> the murderer broke into a co-worker's home while she and her young son slept but left without waking him. He then began stalking the woman, who filed a report against him with the police. He simply walked into court and pleaded guilty to the trespassing and receiving his year of probation. The day after that, he attempted suicide again, of course. See, it's a constant for these types. Out of one thing, right directly into another one. He took two months off work and was treated for depression and two psychiatric facilities, and yes, attempted suicide two more times before the end of 1993. That September, a 91-year-old cancer patient reported that a sneaky male nurse had injected her while she slept, but family members and health care providers at the hospital just thought the old lady was out of her mind from chemo or something. That was before she woke up dead the next morning. Her son protested that her death was not natural, so Warren Hospital administered lie detector tests to several nurses, which he passed with flying colors. He continued to work at Warren Hospital until the following spring. He then began a three-year stint in the intensive care cardiac care unit of Hunston Medical Center in Flemington, where it was there was until five patients mysteriously, mysteriously died between January and September of 1996 again with overdosers of digoxin. Seems that bad luck just follows him around, don't it, folks? He then found work at Morristown Memorial Hospital, but was soon fired for being drunk on the job. He stayed unemployed for six months and stopped making child support payments. After seeking treatment for depression in the Warren Hospital emergency room, he was admitted to a psychiatric facility for a while. And being that nobody thought to take his nursing license away from him because nobody wants a certified deviant caring for him, 
In February 1998, he was hired by the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he staffed a ward of respirator-dependent patients. Oh, that was like handling, handing him over to, to the slaughter, wasn't it, folks? Wasn't long before he was accused of giving patients drugs before their scheduled time. He was fired after being seen entering a patient's room with an armload of syringes in his hands, where he literally broke into the broke the patient's arm trying to inject him at what he's fighting them off my gosh charles caused the patient's death at the liberty hospital which he blamed on another nurse after leaving liberty he was employed at easton hospital in eastern pennsylvania from november 1998 to march 1999 on december 30th of 1998 yet another patient died from digoxin poisoning a coroner's blood test showed lethal amounts of digoxin in the patient's blood, but an internal investigation with Easton Hospital was inconclusive, folks. Evidence didn't def- definitively point at anybody as the murderer. Now, I got to wonder at this point just how many hospitals he's got left to go through. Even with his history of mental instability and the number of patients' deaths during his Employment at various hospitals, he continued to find work due to a national shortage of nurses. To add to the misery, no reporting mechanism existed at the time to identify nurses with mental health or employment problems. So he was able to just fly under the radar, going from hospital to hospital, killing people and moving on. And even worse than that, due to their concerns about liability, hospitals were unwilling to take any action against him that would be seen as admitting guilt and <laughs> Folks, that would never do. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, folks, in March of 1999, he took a job at the burn unit of Allentown's Lehigh Hospital, where, again, people started dying off. And it only took him a month before he voluntarily resigned from Lehigh Valley Hospital and took a job working at the cardiac care unit in St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, for the love of Mike. During the following three years, at least five patients expired unexpectedly, while two more were <clears throat> pulled from the brink of death and were saved by the, in the nick of time. On January 11, 2000, Charles tried to kill himself again by lighting a charcoal grill in his bath in his bathtub and hoping the carbon monoxide would kill him. But as it turned out, his neighbors smelled smoke and called the fire department and police. He was taken to a hospital and a psychiatric facility again, but returned home the following day and to beat it all, still kept his nursing license. Nobody even suspected Charles of murdering patients at St. Luke's until a co-worker found full vials of medication in a disposal bin. The drugs were not valuable outside the hospital and weren't used by recreational drug users, so their theft was very suspicious. An investigation showed that Nurse Cullen had taken the medication. He was offered a deal by the medical facility, resign and be given a neutral recommendation or be dragged off the back porch and fired. He resigned and was escorted from the building by security on June of 2002 with his nursing certificate tucked under his arm as he left. Seven of his co-workers at St. Luke's later alerted the Lehigh Valley or Lehigh County District Attorney 
about their suspicions that the nurse Cullen had used drugs to kill patients. Investigators never looked in days past, and the case was dropped nine months later due to a lack of evidence. In September 2002, he yet again landed a job working in a critical care unit of a Somerset Medical Center in Somersville, New Jersey. He began dating a local woman around this time, but his depression still got the worse. At least 13 patients unexpectedly died <clears throat> and attempted it, and at least one more was uh, snatched from the jaws of death by mid-2003. All died of digoxin, insulin, and epinephrine poisoning. On June 18, 2003, Charles tried to murder a patient named Philip Grieger, who survived the attack and was later discharged. Soon afterward, Somerset began to notice his sneaky ways. The hospital computer system showed that he was accessing the records of patients who he didn't have anything to do with and wasn't assigned to. Co-workers began seeing Nurse Cullen in the rooms of the patients to whom he wasn't even assigned. The hospital's computerized drug dispensing cabinets showed that Nurse Cullen was requesting medications that his patients hadn't even been prescribed, and his drug requests were very strange and included many orders that were immediately canceled and many repetitive requests within minutes of each other. Looks like he was trying to pull off a holocaust of the sick, don't it? In July 2003, the executive director of the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System warned Somerset officials that at least four suspicious overdoses indicated that one of their employees was flat out killing patients. The hospital delayed contacting authorities for three more months. By then, this mystery employee had killed at least five other patients and attempted to kill a sixth. When a patient in Somerset <clears throat> died of low blood sugar in October 2003, that, for some reason, was the straw that broke the camel's back. So the hospital finally called the New Jersey State Police. That patient was <clears throat> Charles' final victim. State officials tore the hospital a new one for failing to report a <clears throat> non-fatal insulin overdose administered by Nurse Cullen in August. Officials heads nearly exploded after an investigation into Nurse Cullen's employment history revealed that past suspicious about suspicions about his involvement in patient deaths. Somerset Hospital finally fired Nurse Cullen on Halloween of 2003 for lying on his job application. Fellow nurse Amy Longren called the police after becoming alarmed about Charles' records being ac of accessing drugs and links to patient deaths. Police kept him under surveillance for several weeks until they had finished their investigation. Investigators assigned Nurse Longer to visit Charles after work hours and talk to him while wearing a wire. From this, they were able to produce enough evidence for probable cause. So in December 12, 2003, they pounced on him, arrested him, and dragged him downtown to the hot box for some tough questions. They already had him charged with one count of murder and one count of attempted murder. So on December 14th, he admitted to homicide detectives Dan, Dan Baldwin and Tim Bond that he had murdered Florian Gall and attempted to murder Jen Hahn. But 
both patients at Somerset Hospital. But it didn't stop there. He told the detectives that he had murdered as many as 40 patients over his 16-year career. In April 2004, he pled guilty in a New Jersey court to killing 13 patients and attempted to kill two others by lethal injection while employed at Somerset. As part of his plea agreement, he promised to cooperate with authorities if they didn't seek the death penalty for his crimes. A month later, he pled guilty to the murder of three more patients in New Jersey. In November 2004, he again pled guilty to an Allentown court to killing six patients and trying to kill three others. He repeatedly interrupted the proceedings by taunting the judge with the chant, Your Honor, you need to step down. The bailiff restrained and gagged the wackadoodle and with duct tape to make him shut up. So on March, or March 10, 2006, he was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences in New Jersey and is not eligible for parole until the year 2403. He said that he administered overdoses to patients in order to spare them from being coated. And that's going into cardiac and respiratory arrest, folks, as <clears throat> listed as a code blue emergency. He told anybody who listened that he couldn't bear witness to or hear about attempts of saving a victim's life. It was just too much for him. Not that saving lives wasn't exactly what he was hired to do to start with or anything, though, huh? Currently, the worthless hunk of dog squeeze is held at New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, where he sits and stares out the bar-covered cell window, waiting on <clears throat> some day of the year 2403 when he comes eligible for parole. We'll keep an eye on that because I still intend to be here telling you about it all. <laughs> Hope you got something out of our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and you might check out, uh, I can't remember what... Uh, network it's on but there's a story out there a movie called the good nurse i just discovered the other night and happened to watch it before i finished this one up didn't didn't have any idea it was out but yeah it's, it's pretty good but please join us on facebook group appalachian murder mystery and legend podcast where we can discuss everything appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about and i'll be back real soon with another appalachian murder mystery or legend and i'll see you then